Welcome back to the Better Way podcast brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity podcast for those who find themselves asking, there has to be a better way, right? There just has to be. I'm Zach Kosalia, the co-founder of RNG Insights Lab, and I'm here as always with my friend and colleague and collaborator, Hui Chen. Hi, Hui. Hi, Zach. Hi, everyone. We are quite excited today. We're going to be talking to two very bright people about some research they have done in the compliance area that's relating to how we prove compliance programs values. And that's a big question I know on almost everyone's mind. So we're very excited to hear about this from professors Todd Hall and Sunil Betty. Thanks so much for coming. Todd, why don't we start with you? Who are you, Todd? Uh, so I am a uh, associate professor of business law and ethics at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. Uh, I came to Kelly uh, from from two different um, stints uh, teaching uh, law students in Chicago. Prior to that, prior to my teaching career, uh, I was a criminal defense attorney. So I practiced white collar criminal defense for give or take a decade in and around Chicago, uh, where I represented all kinds of white collar offenders, uh, every everyone from sort of CEOs to secretaries, uh, anyone really that had been had gotten involved in the criminal justice system with economic crime. And that got me interested very much in the subjects about uh, ethical decision making, why good people do bad things. And the front lines of that, as you all know very well, uh, to me at least, is corporate compliance. Terrific. Thanks, Todd. Sunil, this is a coming home of sorts. It uh, is. So I'm an assistant professor of business law and ethics uh, in the same department as Todd in the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. I came to Indiana University from the Wharton School, where I did my PhD in marketing, as well as a PhD in business ethics. And before that, uh, as you uh, mentioned, Zach, this is a little bit of a homecoming. I practiced corporate law at Ropes and Gray uh, and was there for two years. Uh, loved it. You know, insofar as loved the firm, practicing law wasn't for me. And so I decided, uh, you know, academia was where uh, my passion lies. And that sort of brought me to Indiana University. So uh, just a little bit more background. Our department is one of very few in the country uh, that is essentially a group of, of attorneys and uh, folks that are interested in, in law and ethics that are housed in a business school. Uh, Wharton, which Sunil just mentioned, is the other kind of model for that. Uh, we happen to be, I think, the largest now. Uh, and we have you know, give or take, you know, roughly 25 professors here, about half of them are on the tenure track actively doing research. Uh, everybody has a JD, some have PhDs and, and JD MBAs. And we teach, you know, thousands, literally thousands of students about business ethics, and uh, ethical decision making, and certainly topics about uh, all in and around related to, to business law. So it's a really unique place. And it gives us kind of a a unique, um, pl uh, you know, place to sit between law, ethics, compliance, uh, and decision making. So Todd, um, full disclosure to uh, to our audience, we've known each other for probably five, six years, at least. We yeah. first met at, a, I think, academic conference in Michigan. And Todd, I, I, Todd is one of those people who I just always love talking to because whenever I talk to him, it stimulates my brain. 
when he told me about his recent publication that he, out of this research that he did with Sunil, it really fascinated me. Uh, so tell us about this research, how you got started, what drove you to to it and what, what it is. Yeah, th- thanks, Wei. And, and I should say before I start, you know, the uh, the mutual um, you know admiration society goes mo- both ways here because uh, I've learned so much from you um, as as you know y- you know um, you've been the inspiration of a of a, a paper or two probably uh, just our discussions uh, and I've also am certainly um, incredibly impressed with what you all are doing at Ropes and Gray. I think it's amazing what Zach's put together there. So let me give you a little um, background, though, kind of how we came or how this um, paper came up. So like a lot of good things uh, that come up in academia, this was sort of like one of those hallway conversations, I think. You know, Sunil and I were were chit-chatting. He knows about my work in, in compliance. I certainly know about his uh, work as it relates to... Uh, he does empirical work related to to brands and intellectual property and a whole whole bunch of stuff uh, that's really fascinating. And he brings these uh, marketing methodologies, oftentimes, to uh, to his work uh, in in the law related to those subjects. And so we were chit chatting about, hey, this is what's going on in compliance, and one of the big problems that compliance has had for a long time is really kind of understanding how to value it. Right. We, we know that it's important. Uh, everyone knows that compliance is important, but it seems kind of narrow how we've looked at it. Like we only look at it through this lens or we primarily look at it through this lens of how do we avoid liability? I mean, that's been really the, the main way that m- most people have looked at compliance for a long time. OK. And that has a lot of limitations to it. And I was, I think, lamenting that fact with with Sunil. And I was saying, well, you know, there's also though this movement that says we can make the business case for compliance. But the problem is those methods haven't seemed to be really as strong as they could be. I wish there was a better way, if you will, to figure out how, what the value of compliance is. And Sunil immediately said, well, wait a minute, marketers do this type of thing all the time. There's lots of ways that we can look at valuing a thing and we can figure out the elements and we can actually alter those elements and then we can we can go from there. It was the light bulb moment where we said, hey, we should work on this together and we can hopefully say something interesting and new, um, both on the theoretical side on how to look at this, the value of compliance, but also something that we think might be practical and important for companies as they're thinking about all these same problems as well. When you talk about valuing compliance, are we talking about actually measuring whether or not compliant organizations are more likely to be successful businesses. Is that what we're talking about? Is that the analysis that you endeavored to explore? You know, Todd sort of started with this question, right? Is there a way we can show that having a compliance program actually helps with ethical behavior? It helps decreasing potential lawsuits. And I said, maybe, but that's certainly not what I do. What I kind of look at and what I care about is consumers. And Todd said, well, do you think consumers care about compliance? And what is the value of compliance to consumers? And if there is a value to compliance to consumers, can that value then be attached back onto the business? And there's where I said, I'm pretty sure we can show this. When we say the value of corporate compliance in this context, 
What we're talking about is the value of compliance to consumers. And if there's value to consumers of buying a product, patroning a company that has a good compliance program, well, then we can tie that to increases in price. We can tie that to brand loyalty. We can tie that to increases in demand. And these are all ways we can sort of uh, have a metric of value and sort of tie compliance to this underlying, you know, bottom line value. And so that's how we thought about it in the paper. So what did you do? How did you actually go about measuring this? Yeah. So, so the way that the way we thought about it, at least the way that I pitched it was, can we show that when consumers buy products, they're actually willing to pay more for a product, the exact same product, if it comes from a company that has a robust compliance program versus a company that doesn't have a robust compliance program. If we could show that empirically in a rigorous manner, we think that's a pretty good argument that compliance has value, that that is the value. In some ways, the amount that consumers are willing to pay more for that product. And when we discuss this, I realized that there is, you know, a method that does this exact thing in marketing. It's called the conjoint analysis. And basically, it's quite simple. All this method does is allows us to put a more or less a dollar value on given aspects, given features of a product. So, for example, if you're choosing a car, you know, how much are you willing to pay for a manual car over a automatic? And so what conjoint analysis does is allow us to basically apportion out the price that someone would pay for a car, maybe $30,000, say, well, what portion of that $30,000 goes to the manual versus the automatic transmission? And we just applied that methodology in this context and sort of included compliance as a type of feature of a product. And we showed that people are willing to pay more uh, for a product that comes from a company that has a compliance program in comparison to one that doesn't. You talk about a compliance program being motivated by uh, a limitation of liability, uh, or you, you mention a compliance program potentially being built as a result of a sort of insurance policy uh, mindset. But then you also have companies where the compliance program is built because it's kind of part of the DNA of the company. It's deeply ingrained in an authentic culture that they've built. The last one to me feels more like the kind of thing that I'd pay a premium for, but in your research, does it matter what's motivating the compliance program? So the answer is no, not the, the, not the way that we set up this particular study. So uh, what we did was you present the, the participants in the study with a uh, you know, a description of the compliance program. And so it's just that really, it's just a description of the elements or the pieces, if you will. And of course we have to do it in a way that is um, easy enough for them to understand. So you have to simplify in some ways. So it doesn't get to motivation. It really just says, this is what the program is in, in, a, in a way that they can understand it. And then that's it. And that becomes a feature of the product, essentially, that we are presenting them with in these choices. So, Zach, you're absolutely right. You know, it's more like an on-off switch as opposed to one, you know, dialing a gradient, like a light bulb sort of going up or down. However, however, it still has incredible value uh, to us, I think, and I think also to researchers and um, and uh, policymakers and all kinds of things because we think we're the first to really link 
consumer choices, right, to compliance. In terms of marketing, there's a lot of research that shows that CSR, which is not the same as compliance for sure, but CSR developments that are organic, CSR developments that seem very tied to the nature, to the, to the genome of the company, are actually accepted a lot more by consumers than ones that feel sort of artificial. And so what you raise is actually maybe a really nice follow-up study. Todd, let's take some notes on this, that maybe we can sort of start finding iterations and sort of more nuance in how compliance is, is, is incepted in a company. And my I, what I suspect is the more it's part of the company, the more it's perceived as being part of the genome of a company, even more, you know, people are going to be excited about buying that's associated with it. Just to define the, the acronyms for folks, when you say CSR, you're referring to corporate social responsibility. And in fact, um, when you talk about a company that actually views compliance as sort of part of its culture, deeply ingrained in its DNA, I mean, there's direct overlap between that concept and the corporate social responsibility um, strategy. Hui, what's on your mind? Yeah, so I've been thinking, and I did, this is the thought that I had when Todd first told me about the paper. My immediate thought was, but there are many types of compliance programs and many types of products and services that consumers come into direct purchasing decisions uh, with. So how did you set it up? How do you map the, these different kinds of compliance programs with different types of products and services? So I'll let Todd speak to the the choices about compliance, and I'll speak to the choices about products. Uh, so we sort of went back and forth. Uh, I had some ideas about products, and you know, I think Todd has some other ideas about products, and we sort of came to uh, an agreement on three products. Um, the three products were uh, a cell phone, credit cards, and a dining table. And you might say, well, that's kind of random. It's true, it is, but so here is the, the, the thought process behind it. Partly with this method called conjoint analysis, you want products that have been studied in the past. Cell phones are a product that many marketers have used uh, to, to sort of iterate conjoint analysis. And given that that's a product many sort of papers use, I figured it, you know, what features people care about, how we define those features, would be sort of very easy to do and would be able to, we'd be able to point to um, a, a, a nice robust literature there. In addition, we wanted some technological product because you can imagine that certain compliance programs are more easily mapped onto technological products. That's sort of cell phones. Well, then we, we wanted something outside of the standard, you know, box good consumer product, uh, tangible product kind of item. And we thought about financial services. And first we thought about a banking sort of statement, opening up a bank statement. But that's, that was tricky for a lot of different, different uh, reasons. And we came to a credit card. I know we're not on, um, we're not on video, but you know, if your listeners could see the video, what I would do is I would show you this credit card that I got recently that was advertised to me because of a new sort of design. There was also a new, really new color um, that, that this credit card happened to be American Express. And I thought to myself, wow, Companies are really spending a lot of money on design of these things, but let's see if compliance actually matters more than design. And so that was sort of the impetus for the credit card. And lastly, we chose the dining tables. And you might be like, who cares about a dining table? Well, this we were coming right out of COVID and I bought a house recently and I bought a dining table and it took like, you know, like 12 months to get to me and I was a little very bitter about it. 
And I said, you know what? We're going to do We're going to choose dining tables because it's kind of a product people are thinking about. Furniture was super hot in, in COVID. And I thought it'd be, you know, in some ways, a very cool, uh, uh, unique product that spoke to a lot of people, particularly coming out. So we took those three and they have standard set of features generally. And then one of the features that we're going to also, we needed to test, of course, was the compliance program. So we broke that up into a couple different uh, types. So we did privacy and security, uh, environmental uh, health and safety, and then we did sort of an anti-fraud and corruption uh, program. And we looked to the standard places that you might imagine for how would we describe those those programs. So we started, of course, with um, with the um, the sentencing guidelines. And then we looked, of course, at the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Uh, we looked at some kind of traditional sort of compliance consultant type uh, places, uh, you know, Deloitte and PwC and stuff like that, to come up with standard language about individual types of compliance programs. And so when you push all that together and you summarize it, that then became the description of these individual programs that then we could alter and include in our set of features that we presented to to our consumers. So the big drum roll moment, <laughs> what did you find? We found basically three overarching uh, findings. So the first is that consumers are willing to pay a premium for products that come from a company that has a strong or effective compliance program as we've defined it. So I tend to think about this as like the tagline, consumers will pay more for compliance. The second finding is that consumers value products from companies that have compliance programs more than they would uh, other attributes of those products. So for example, our consumers will value certain compliance programs over say standard features that companies spend lots of money um, talking about and promoting because they believe that those are important features for consumers. So just like Sunil mentioned, you know, uh, people care more about compliance programs than they do about fancy designs on a credit card, it, it turns out. And they care about a compliance program, particularly a data privacy compliance program, more than they do about the color of a cell phone, even though Apple, for example, probably spends you know millions and millions of dollars coming up with the perfect Pantone color and you know hitting some new uh, hot hot trendy color uh, for their next iteration of iPhones. Okay, so again, I think about that. The tagline is compliance is worth more than a than a pretty phone or a pretty feature. And then the third thing is that consumers are willing to pay more to pay price premiums for compliance programs that are targeted at the products that they're purchasing. So this was one of the really interesting things that we found is that linking the compliance program tighter to the product or the type of product itself had caused um, consumers to pay more for as a price premium. And so linking say a data privacy compliance uh, to a technological product like a cell phone made more sense uh, then say, you know, uh, anti-corruption and the dining table, like more of a manufactured product, for example. So I think about this as linking compliance programs and products is, is good business. That's exactly right. And, you know, so some people may be asking, wait, but there's so many other features that we, we didn't test. And so how do you really know that, you know, privacy and cybersecurity really matters in comparison to 
other features you didn't test. And you know, this is sort of a, a, a good criticism of any survey design. There's always limitations on what you can do. And the way Todd and I thought about this, and this goes to, in some ways, the second point Todd, Todd raised, is if we choose features that we think companies spend money on, R&D, advertising, if we can show that people care more about compliance than they care about these features, that's a really nice finding. That should really provide compliance practitioners some ammo to really say, hey, consumers care about what we're doing. So even leaving aside all the other aspects of value, this set of value uh, is important. And this means that we should be investing more dollars into robust compliance programs. I, I would imagine that most compliance people would greet your findings with much enthusiasm. It's some validation of the work that that the compliance departments do. I'm curious to hear what reactions you have gotten from business people about your finding. I think in some ways compliance people have been excited about this. We've heard a little bit, little bit of that. I would say though, it hasn't been overwhelming. I think people are a little resistant to old ideas dying way. And so, you know, I've had some compliance folks say, okay, that's kind of, that's interesting, but you know, we've got this narrative that is sort of, you know, compliance is going to help the bottom line. And and that's all we really need. I don't know that we need anything more than this. And so, so that's one, that's one piece. And that's always going to be an issue that, you know, that you all know very well, right? Just getting people to sort of look at problems in a different way is, is part of the, the struggle of, of any new study, but also any kind of change. All right. As for the business people, you know, in some ways, if we're talking about, you know, true kind of top level, you know, top level managers, people making decisions about the whole company, they often don't care exactly where value comes from, as long as it's measurable and it's real, right? And so if the spend is better uh, in the compliance department, then, you know, marketing, you know, spending a bunch more money on a feature that people care about less, then a manager who's trying to really, you know, make the company go, that's what they should do. When we think about conjoint analysis, it's often used for product design, right? It's often used, what is the right features of the product? How should the product look? How should the product be priced? And conjoint analysis originated in marketing departments, but it has certainly uh, gained a lot of traction in finance scholarship, in management scholarship. And so business people understand conjoint analysis. And they all understand whether you're talking about the, the marketer, whether you're talking about the engineer, they all understand that product design is important. But I think what these business units sort of don't understand is that compliance is a part of that, right? Compliance is a part of product design. At least it can be a part of product design. And so insofar as they, meaning the business people, sort of start can start seeing compliance departments in the same way they maybe see the engineering department, in the same way they see the R&D department as sort of helping to design the products, helping to, to talk about or helping to, you know, allow marketers and, and, you know, business practitioners to communicate about the product to consumers. I hope, and this has been my, you know, my experience in presenting this paper and talking about it to business practitioners is that they're excited about it. They're excited that here is another aspect of product design uh, that they can rope into sort of these other business units in a way as opposed to keeping it, you know, so far away. 
I love that. And I want to underscore that because I think that part of the challenge that so many of our listeners and I think many of us have had as the in-house compliance people or advisors to in-house compliance people is that there is a sense within the company, there's a narrative within the company that compliance is a cost center. Mm -hmm. And what you are finding and what you are encouraging folks to continue to explore is the idea that compliance can actually create value, that that compliance can be something more than a cost center, that it can be more than an enabling function, that compliance itself can be a element of the product. But here's, which is ex so exciting, uh, and and I I think folks should be really enthusiastic and, and jumping all over this. But I often find that folks don't want compliance to be part of their product or company narrative when things go wrong, obviously. Uh, but they also aren't terribly interested in it being part of the narrative when things go right. It's just, let's avoid compliance being part of our external narrative. But in order to actually capitalize on your findings, it has to actually be more of the external discussion about the product and about the company. So talk to us a little bit about that. First of all, Zach, I, I think you hit it 100% on the head. As we were considering this project, it was like, listen, how do we, you know, how do we really understand the value of this, of this thing, this compliance in a real way? And then once we realize that consumers really are willing to actually pay more for it, right, which creates value, then how is it, how can it be used? And in order to, to unlock that value, right, because it's consumer focused, you're going to have to talk about compliance more. Uh, what you're doing, how it's tied to a product, how it is um, integral to your company and the, and what you do, uh, that's how you're going to get the consumer price premium gains uh, that we have demonstrated can come from this. A good company that's doing this in an authentic way, this is what they should be owning and talking about anyways, mm -hmm. right? Because it's not fake. You know, they're not fibbing about anything. They're not bluffing. They're not puffing. This is actually what they're doing. And assuming that's truthful, it's just like any other product feature. And you should get credit for that in the marketplace when you're doing something that's either innovative or good or revolutionary or whatever. So it not only encourages you to talk about it, it encourages you to do it the right way, which is a beneficial sort of cycle and circle uh, and that's a, I think that's a really cool implication of the paper. Marketers often tell, uh, you know, business people talk about the good stuff you're doing. And again, the response is, well, if it turns out the good stuff we're doing isn't good and isn't true, then we're going to be in trouble. It's like, of course, but this is a way to actually hold compliance accountable. If we recognize that good compliance that's described well, that is clearly articulated, it's transparent, helps consumers make purchases and you know, creates customer value or creates value to the customer. Well, then that is the feedback loop, which means that compliance better be good and it better be working by encouraging companies to sort of communicate externally about this. I think, and this is a hypothesis, it decreases the incidence of check the box compliance because now customers know that you're doing this and customers are going to hold you accountable because if they find out it's not real, you better believe it's going to have a, a problematic value. 
the discussion we're having leads me to think about one of the possible reasons for the reluctance of compliance community in embracing your findings is I, I know many of them struggle just to market themselves internally. So forget externally, just even getting people in their company, other stakeholders to see their function as one of essential value to the company has been a struggle for many compliance people. And now you're talking about not, you know, not only you have to convince the internal stakeholders to think of you that way, but they have to believe it is so much that they would actually incorporate that into the, you know, their messaging to the external audience. And that's just seems impossible, I think, to a lot of uh, the people who are currently working in compliance. So to, to, the, to those people who are somewhat reticent and perhaps fearful about what this all means, what would you say to them? Part of the, the you know, genesis of the paper is to try to, to try to think about how do we talk about compliance in a way that business managers can really understand and internalize. So we talk a little bit about the paper, about that evolution that you're talking about in compliance, but we also talk a lot about, listen, the, the bottom line, whether we like it or not, is that is that man most managers and companies think about, about revenues. It, that, that is going to be their driving force in, in many respects. It's not the only thing for sure, but it, it's really important. In order to get people to listen, you have to show that your initiative, whatever that might be, is going to be revenue positive. And the, the earlier you can demonstrate that, the faster you can show that, the better for you if you want to get buy into that initiative. Okay. So if I'm a compliance uh, a person uh, and I want to talk about a, an initiative, uh, I need to show that it has sort of revenue potential, real revenue potential. And so I, I might have our paper and say, listen, if we do this, we there's there's at least evidence, there's empirical evidence that consumers will care about it and they will reward us, the company, for doing this. I think that's a that's a way to start that internal conversation. That's where I would start. I would start internal with the idea that we might be able to to move external. The benefit of that just generally is I think it gets people out of this idea of compliance being a department of no and only about liability avoidance, which as you you all know is extremely extremely difficult to quantify. I think one of the better ways here that's really accentuated throughout is the importance of ethics and compliance professionals to speak the business language. Yeah. And that has been a challenge for many of them from day one and to today. So if you feel like you're not quite where you can talk about con conjoint analysis comfortably, you can at least start by just hanging out more with your business colleagues, listen to their conversation, listen to what they care about, how they talk about their work, how they talk about value in what they do, how they talk about value to the customers that your company serves. So I think that's the real beginning point is getting out of your office, getting out of that liability thinking, immerse yourself in the business of the of the company and then you can start you know getting conversational and then fluent i think compliance uh folks 
tend to stay in their bubble in the area that they're most comfortable with, which is rules and regulations and trainings and things like that, right? And they go forward because that's kind of a standard playbook, which I understand. However, most companies have so many talented people with incredibly vast skill sets at their disposal. Any large company certainly does, right? You've got marketers, you've got data science people, you know, you've got all kinds of people that have all, that have incredible skills. And so you don't have to understand it all. You just got to find the right people who do, and you got to build a little mini team to tackle whatever problem that you're after. And that's really where this comes from. We saw the problem as compliance is seen a certain way, and we thought we thought that that's too narrow. That's the beginning of this project, right? And then it goes to, well, great. What tools do we use in order to show that it, you know, that it can be seen a different way? Right? And that's the collaborative aspect of this. I think I do want to say that that's also the story of the lab. Yeah, is that we have built a team of people with different areas of expertise to try to tackle problems traditional problems in non-traditional creative ways. And I, I will say, Sunil, I'm very, very excited about being introduced to you through this study because for a long time, I have said marketing is the area where compliance really needs to learn from. Mark, what is marketing all about? My understanding is it's trying to influence people's behavior. That's, that's what the core of marketing is. Marketing has been on the forefront of using data and behavior science to do that, just that. So excited to see this collaboration between marketing and compliance. And I think there's so many more things that can be researched and can be talked about and can be done in this, in this collaboration. All right, it's clear that we could continue this discussion, but now it's time to get to know you both a little bit better. So all of our guests get asked a standard questionnaire that's inspired by Proust and Bernard Pivot and, for those of us of a certain age, James Lipton and <laughs> the actor studio, which is very much where I uh, get inspired for this. I'm going to go to you first, Sunil. Uh, so question number one is a choice. You get to choose which of these questions you want to answer. Um, either A, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? Or B, is there a quality uh, about yourself that you're currently working to improve? And if so, what is it? I'll take the former and I will say, I wish I could wake up tomorrow and be a good singer. I've been booed off stage doing karaoke numerous times and I never want that to happen again. I love that. I feel that. I feel that. It's similar to one of Hui's answers when, uh, when she took the questionnaire too. So uh, we're all very simpatico on that. Uh, Todd, you get to choose one of those two. Which one do you want to answer? I'm going to choose the latter. So I'm going to go a little more serious on this one. So, which is um, something I'm currently working on, and and this comes from my kids. I can be incredibly hard on people. Uh, I demand a lot of myself. I tend to demand a lot of on, on, of other people, and sometimes that's not entirely fair. So I'm reminded by that uh, day to day. If you have kids, um, uh, they, they will set you straight in that regard when you're being a little bit too, too hard on them. So, so that's what I'm working on. Terrific. All right, let's go on to, uh, question number two. And this one is for you, Todd. Uh, you also get to choose one of two, either a, who is your favorite mentor or B, who do you wish you could be mentored by? 
I've been so lucky to have so many mentors in my life, incredible mentors. Uh, there's two that stand out. Uh, the first lawyer I ever really worked for, I was in high school, small town lawyer, uh, was a former judge, brilliant guy. And the, the reason he was a mentor is he really showed me about the integrity of, of being a, a good, good attorney, kept everyone's confidences, treated everyone with respect, uh, and just worked really hard on people's behalf. He was a criminal defense attorney and, and did a lot of other stuff in a small town. And he was an incredibly well-respected guy. So that was my introduction to lawyers acting the right way. And, and it's something that I, I haven't forgotten. And then the other, I had a great professor in college uh, who, who was an ethics professor, and he really introduced me to thinking about law and ethics in, in a different way. So those two together probably set me on, on this path you know, before I even really knew I was on it. Terrific. Thanks for that, Todd. All right, Sunil, question number three. What is the best job, paid or unpaid, that you've ever had? This is tricky because I have two sort of stakeholders here, Rokeson Gray as well as Indiana University. <laughs> so I'm going to say, I'm going to go with saying, and the unpaid job. One of my favorite unpaid jobs is I'm an assistant coach for a D1 women's tennis team uh, here in Indianapolis. And it's just so fulfilling to get out there, hit some balls, try to like mentor young people. Um, and I'm really appreciative of the opportunity that I get to do that almost every day. It's amazing. All right, Todd, the next question is for you. And uh, it's question number four. What is your favorite thing to do? Yeah, that's easy. I, I do love to be on the water. I, I Sailing is, I, I do love it. It doesn't make any sense. I grew up in the middle of a cornfield uh, in rural Northern Illinois, uh, but I got opportunity to, to to sort of, you know, do some sailing with friends in college. And th that is where I just, you know, the, the smile on, on my face is the biggest. Terrific. So next question is for Sunil. What is your favorite place? For me, it's Tokyo, Japan. It's by far my favorite city in the world. I think it has the best combination of fashion, food, and culture that I've ever, I've ever seen. If I could speak Japanese, I wouldn't be here. I would be hanging out in Japan for, for sure. <laughs> so that's another ability that you would want to gain. So you got to choose if you have to gain one. Like, is it, you know, speaking Japanese or singing? Well, you know, karaoke is really big in Japan. So I think they go, ah. maybe they go together, right? This is true. This is true. Um, next question is for Todd. What makes you proud? Uh, this is easy. Um, as a parent, hearing someone else compliment your child on being a good person, right? Not about some thing they did, you know, some grade or, or you know, sports accolade about being a good person. That, that makes you proud every time. That's awesome. Now we go from the profound to the mundane. Sunil, <laughs> what email sign-off do you use most frequently? You know, it used to be cheers. And then someone told me I'm not from England. And so I have, I've now moved to best. Best is I find to be uh, uh, uncontroversial, to say the least. Yes. Best is also what I use. Seems, uh, seems straightforward enough. Yeah, um, times, times three on that. That's what I use as well. So it must be okay. There we go. Todd, what trend in your field is most overrated? There's a lot of trends that are overrated. Benchmarking has been one of the, you know, one of uh, the trends that I have criticized in the past. I, I understand the compulsion, um, but I think it limits innovative thinking a lot of times and gets us kind of all following the, the same flock, which not, isn't necessarily good. I think tone at the top is one of those things that's overrated. Um, not that it's not important. It's incredibly important, but it's also myopic and, and, and misses focus. I think 
rules in you know massive codes of conduct uh, those are also generally overrated i think we're moving away from that but listen if we want to do things right you got to keep it simple and straightforward and you got to be thinking about uh decision points right where is the point of decision and how can you influence that and taking a really legalistic overbroad approach is is probably not best for that I think if I were to add one that I wish I had said is uh, training as a fix to everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or the way that training is currently done as a, as a fix to anything. Exactly. You could also add, uh, you know, lawyers being the uh, most sought after, uh, you know, com- people on a compliance team. Not that they aren't important. But uh, I think, you know, in, in some ways, the lab, the way it's modeling itself and its team approach, I think, is how uh, compliance should be thinking about. Let's get let's get a, a bevy of skills in there, uh, not just ones uh, that are based in sort of uh, legal training. Amen to that. Yeah. Last question to Sunil. What word would you use to describe your day so far? Well, I would say, you know, my day has been incredibly fun so far, particularly because of the last hour. Anytime I get to you know, hang out with my colleague and obviously very close friend Todd and is awesome. And being able to connect with you two and sort of have a homecoming to Ropes and Gray uh, is really fascinating and just super exciting for me. So a great fun day um, so far. Terrific. Thank you so much, Sunil. Uh, Todd, any final words for our listeners? Uh, listen to the podcast. Listen to these people. They know what they're talking about. Stay tuned for for the collaborations that are going to come out of you know, more the type of work that Sunil and I are doing, uh, more uh, work that sits at the intersection of law and behavioral science and and uh, compliance. So we got all kinds of things cooking. So stay tuned and, you know, keep your, keep your mind open. Thanks, Todd. Sunil, you get the final word. Thank you so much for having me and Todd on the, on the podcast. Uh, we're really appreciative of it. And uh, you guys are doing great stuff. Terrific. Thank you guys so much. This has been great. Thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG Insights Lab. You can also subscribe to the series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.